0: Welcome to the show, friends. Uh, Greg Kokel back with you here, and uh, we have a a full bank of callers, so I'm going to get to you uh, soon. I wanted to reinforce or remind you that we are uh, moving towards the end of our month, our special month in August, where we are inviting new strategic partners on board. A pledge of a monthly gift of $30 or more in celebration of STR's 30th year ministry will get you an autographed copy of my new book, Street Smart: Using Questions to Answer Christianity's Toughest Challenges. That's going to be released September 12th, but I've been signing books for the last few weeks because we have a batch of them here, and my understanding is Ocean is sending them out. Is that right? Ocean's sending out those books, Kyle? She's already sending those books out as as pledges are coming in. Yeah, so some of you have already gotten it. If you want to get it soon, this is an avenue for getting that quickly, uh, becoming a strategic partner. But that's not the reason I want you to be a strategic partner. Get the book. You can get the book any time. Uh, I want you to become part of our family, uh, part of our financial foundation, part of our our uh, core of cadre who are making Stand to Reason possible every single month. And, uh, and I want you to enjoy the personal benefits of being part of that by contributing financially. If you want to be part of that, str.org slash partner str.org slash partner. The deadline is August 31, and we're getting closer as time goes on. I'm trying to think next week. Um, hmm, 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 That'll be the last week. I'm not sure if I'm going to be doing announcements. So just just so you know, okay, hope to have you on board. We are just ready to breach. Last count that I saw, breaching the 100. Hopefully that'll take us into... uh, plus territory over and above what we were praying for and uh, hoping for, and you can be part of that. Be one of the hundred plus by going to str.org partner. That would be slash partner. Also, just a reminder that um, sign-ups still ongoing right now for Southern California Reality. Right now, uh, 1,150 Signed up. Actually, this is earlier in the week. That was our number, and in Washington, we got 752. In both cases, our numbers are beyond what we have been in past years at this point in time for both of those events. So, if you're in uh, Southern California, you want to be part of this magnificent thing that we're doing called Reality Student Apologetics Conferences. September 22nd and 23rd is the Southern California event at Biola. We won't be at Calvary Chapel this year. We'll be at Biola. And in Washington, we will be in Bellevue again. Uh, and uh, that date is October 13th and 14th. I think we already getting sign-ups from Minnesota, which is November 10th and 11th, in the middle of the month rather than towards the end. But uh, all of those available at... RealityApologetics.com, dot They'll give you the details there, and you can sign up. Okay, with that done, let's go to oh, Mr. Cade Boy, Cade from Colorado Springs. How you doing, Cade? Mister Cade, I'm
1: doing. I'm doing well, Mister Coco. How are you?
0: <laughs> well, I'm doing fine. So, let me guess, what's on your mind? <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> Our yeah, ongoing
0: conversation, yes.
1: Yes, ongoing conversation, yes. I, um, honestly, Mr. Kokel the last couple weeks, or actually just since I talked to you at Summit, um, this whole idea of Reformed theology has really been on my mind. Good. Um And I know for some people, like, some people will say, oh, I don't really care. For me, I do really care because mm-hmm. it has to do with, like, salvation and how I think about God and how I think about his attributes. So it's been right. something I really contemplated. But yeah, I just wanted to follow up on our conversation. Sure,
0: of time. course of course by the way i i i do think it's important too and the to me my that that god is responsible for my salvation is what gives me my sense of security and safety It's key to me, too. So there's great application individually. And I'm not saying that people who don't agree with Reformed theology don't feel a sense of security and safety. I'm not saying that. I'm just talking about, in my particular case, that really, really is the foundation, and uh, my awareness that God rescued me. Um, And even when I had no interest in Him, He rescued me, and that, that, that does affect my understanding of God's character tremendously, His grace. What He didn't owe me, He gave me.
1: Right. And it's actually it's perfect you say that, because it has to do with the first thing I would like to talk to you about. Sure. Um, Because when we left off, um, I think it was two weeks ago now, um, I I gave you the the death row analogy, where a father has two sons on death row, and he could get both of them out, and he only chooses to save one, Mm -hmm. right? And the, the two reasons you gave me for saying you, you think that's, like, not a wholesome analogy is, first of all, because you're not going to base your theology on an analogy that paints God's actions in a bad light, but rather you're going to base it on what you find in Scripture.
2: Right, um, right.
1: And, and the second reason why is because I believe you said that there could be more going on that we don't know, that God mm-hmm. could be using um, certain things for a good purpose. That's right. Um. And so concerning that... You just talked about how, as a believer, it gives you confidence. And I could see, like, if I, if I subscribe to a Reformed theology, I think that would give me a lot of confidence. Mm-hmm. But the thing I struggle with, Mr. Koukl, and I want to get to some passages here, because that's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing I struggle with here is what would happen to unbelievers. Um, and so for me, I think about the fact that if we say God is love, and I think I brought this up to you at Summit, um, if we talk about the fact that God is love, and there's passages like First First Timothy two four that talks about He wants all to be saved, or First John two two where it talks about how He died for the sins of the whole world. It seems that the Reformed theology kind of goes against some things in Scripture that seem to imply God wants everyone to be saved.
0: Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Let me let me respond. I I I also well the other verse. That I think we discussed a little bit was the Second Peter passage. Peter
1: three, 3 nine. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, yeah. Go ahead. Well, all I was going to say is I went back and I did look at that verse and I I, I saw that you had a point there. Yeah. Um, that it's not necessarily talking about the whole world, but he's he, Peter is talking to the 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 Christians that he's writing to. He's saying, "I God is not willing for any of you to perish." Yeah. Um, and he is he is slow and waiting for all of you to believe.
0: Yes, um, right. Of course, you put the you in there, which isn't in the text, but this is the point. What is the antecedent? God is not willing that any, then no object, should perish, but that all and no object uh, should come to repentance. So that's that's the problem of, you know, w- we automatically put those words "any" in the world, any human being, when, in fact, when you look at the context—I'm looking for the verse right now. Um, La, da, 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 da. What is the verse? Do you have it in front of you?
1: Second Peter three nine. It says, "Oh three nine, okay.
0: Is... Not slow about his promises, some ones, but is patient toward you, not right. wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance." So the antecedent for the any and all would naturally, grammatically, be the you that he just mentioned. And in fact, when you track all the pronouns in the whole chapter, that's the case all the way through. He's talking about them, but that that so that that at least uh, provides some understanding of how that verse isn't talking about God's desire for universal salvation, but the first Peter. I'm sorry, the uh, first Timothy passage seems to be more explicit, and that's the second one you mentioned, right? Yep. Okay, so let, let me just go to that H I Timothy Thessalonians first Timothy, chapter two. Um. This is good and acceptable in the sight of a God our saver who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, okay? For there is one God, one mediator also between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at a proper time, okay? So there's a couple of alls there. There is God desires all to be saved, and he gave himself as a ransom for all, okay? Right. Now, the, the standard way of understanding the all there in terms of the ransom for all, and also the reference that you made in John chapter 2, I think, is that the, the work of the cross is adequate for everyone, but it is not applied to everyone, and God did never intended it to apply to everyone he only intended it to apply to those who fulfill the requirements. Now, these are the the words I'm using to describe this, because I think it's a little easier to see this than the ways I've heard other people characterize it, okay? Like the all or all the elect, okay? Here's the way to think about it. Armenians and Calvinists, Reformed, all agree that God isn't saving everybody, so, therefore, whatever Jesus did isn't actually applied to everyone, because if it was applied to everyone, then it, everyone would be saved. Fair enough? Right. Okay. So, it is only applied in specific, according to a specific criteria. And what is that criteria? How would you characterize it?
1: The criteria for for who is um, under under the cross. Yeah. Who experiences
0: well, salvation.
1: Right. Well, those who um, decide to accept Jesus and confess with their mouth and all that, that, right. all that, that Jesus is Lord.
0: All that stuff. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's lots of stuff. ways of characterizing it, but it amounts to belief in Jesus, receiving Jesus, confessing Jesus. Right. So, everybody believes there's a requirement. Now, does God intend to save anybody that does not fulfill that requirement? No, he doesn't. So the intention of the work of the cross was only for those who fulfill the requirement. By the way, those who fulfill the requirement, we call what? Christians. Yes. What does the scripture call them? Believers. Occasionally. That is the description, yes, but there's the other. Elect. The elect. <laughs> the chosen. The chosen ones. The chosen elect. Exactly. So those who fulfill the requirement are called by scripture the elect or the chosen also the body of Christ more generally believers but the words elect and chosen are specifically applied to those who fulfill the requirements so it would be fair to would it be fair to say i mean i've kind of led you right to this conclusion that god only intended the sacrifice of christ to apply to the elect those who he, that are the chosen. I wouldn't even say he chose right now but the cho- that are called the chosen.
1: Right. Well, I would agree with that. I think I I am not saying this. I'm saying what I think Arminians would say is that the difference is that the people uh, is that um, people are given the free choice as to whether they want to be in that category.
0: Yes, I agree with I understand that, but that's not relevant to the point I'm making. The point I'm making is, with regards to so-called particular atonement, even though the statements he died for the whole world, we know that we all all agree that that doesn't mean it's applied to everybody because we're not universalists. Right. It's only applied to those who fulfill the requirement, and fulfilling the requirement means that they believe in Christ and they become Christians. So it's only meant and intended to be applied to those who are Christians who are also called the elect. So God only intends to apply the work of the cross to the elect. He does not intend to apply the work to anyone else, even though it's adequate for everyone else. Here's another way of, of looking at the language of all, okay, or the whole world. All of the, the, the roads in the country are for everyone. They're all for everyone. Does everyone travel on those roads? No. No. Only people who choose to travel on the roads. Now, there's a difference, following the analogy, that we would—Armenians and and, uh, Reformed—saying, what is the the ultimate um, cause of the choice? All I'm saying here is that, essentially, that so-called particular atonement, should not be controversial—limited atonement is the way it's classically put—but it should not be controversial to anybody, because we all agree with the basic points there. God intends the atonement to be applied only to those who satisfy the requirement, who then by faith become Christians, who are called the elect. So he only intends the atonement to apply to the elect. That's particular atonement. I don't know why any Arminian would disagree with that.
1: Well, quick clarification question on that, Mister Cokel. Okay, um, maybe maybe my knowledge of this is incorrect, um, but I, I think I'm a bit confused because my my understanding of the classical limit atonement is not that atonement is only applied to certain people, but that Christ only died for certain people. That Christ didn't never in Christ never intended to die for the sins of the whole world. He That's, only died well, for the sins of those he would but, elect.
0: Yes, but that was the language I used. God intended the death of christ only to apply to those who satisfy the requirement then you agreed with that which everybody okay. agrees with that and so that's the point god intended so this is why the for is ambiguous he died for the world just like the highways are for everybody but but the only people that that are, that god intends to benefit from that are the ones who fulfill the requirement of faith in Christ, which are called the elect. Now, we can talk about how they get elect, but they are called the elect and they're called the chosen. Those are God's words for it, okay? Which uh, just the very words that are being used strengthens my own view, by the way. But I'm just saying at this particular point, we should have no disagreement. But we can talk about well, what about God's statements that He wants everybody to be saved? Yet, according to Reformed, he doesn't choose everybody, and um, and the answer to that, and I had recommended a book for you, a tome, a big one that Alan Gomes. It was a yes, but it was I think I said on the air that it was Hodges' dogmatics, and I got that wrong. And in a note to you, I I corrected that. But for the rest of those listening, it's W.G.T. Shed, S.H.E.D.D., and he wrote 120 years ago and uh this is this is i don't know if you purchased the book or not but i've been having my evening devotions in it uh, in light of our conversations and it's been really magnificent cuz he's got a couple of pages devoted to this particular question when i say a couple of pages that's a lot of stuff maybe 3 because he's got it's all very fine print you know it's very dense but um <clears throat> one of the most significant points that he makes and this goes to the issue of first timothy chapter chapter three is it is chapter two rather verse four it, it, it is true that God desires all men to be saved. He does desire that, okay? The thing is is all men do not come to him in keeping with this desire. the beneficent desire <clears throat> that God has to, uh, to see men repent and come to him. He is not doing anything at all, and Ched makes this point, He is not doing anything at all to prevent them from coming. The natural grace that He gives all men is adequate for all to come. The problem is, is human beings resist natural grace. They are stiff-necked. This is what Stephen says in the book of Acts about the Jews. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit, and this is characteristic of all men. So, there are ways in which God wills something to be the case that doesn't always happen. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, And this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Of course, (laughs) we know that even though God wants everybody to abstain from sexual immorality, they don't do it, right? Right. That means there, there is a way that God wants something that He does not... Commit himself to fulfilling, though he wants it. That is up to the human being to fulfill that, and that's an example of that. That's what we call standard reason, and others have called it God's moral will. God's moral will are things that He g- genuinely wants um, for the good of people, but He is not He 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 is not committing Himself to fulfill that. In their case, that's up to them to fulfill. Okay. That's opposed to God's sovereign will, where God does what he wills on heaven, in heaven, and on earth. So we have distinctions there a, a kind of will that always gets fulfilled because God guarantees the end, and a kind of will of God that doesn't get fulfilled because that's in the hands of people. That's their responsibility to fulfill. My suspicion is, and there's re- really no reason not to see it this way, um, is that verse 4. When it says in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, God desires all men to be saved, it's expressing his moral will, will. his desire for good things to happen to all men, just like all kinds of other commands that he gives that he wants people to fulfill, but they choose not to. What's also interesting is that what Shedd says is that this offer of salvation is going out to everybody, not just to the elect. Because, for one, there is a kind of a practical problem of just giving the offer to the elect. You have to know who the elect are. The preacher has to know who the elect—will the elect please come forward? You know, that kind of thing. Well, that's not practical. The offer goes out to mankind. But it is also an expression of God's beneficence and well-wishing on people to offer a good offer, even though he knows many of them will not respond to that. Okay? And uh, in fact, this is the kind of thing that we see in the Old Testament prophets all the time. Think of Jeremiah. Poor Jeremiah is sent out to preach a message that God tells him no one will listen to. Okay? And, uh, and even so, it's a message of repentance, and it's a message, though he knows no one's going to listen to it, or by large people aren't going to listen to it, he still expresses it as a mention of goodwill. He offers the right hand of fellowship after a fashion, even to those that are going to slap it, because God is a good God. Okay? Now who slaps his hand like that? Everybody does. And if there's going to because of the fallen nature of man, if there's going to be a bride for Christ, there has to be believers. And so God purposed to rescue some and not others. Why? I can't tell you. Neither can Shed. He doesn't know either. But it's clear from the text that this is what it says, that he purposed to rescue some and not others. He makes the offer to everybody because he's a good God. And he is not standing in their way. They are standing in their way. What he has to do is rescue some human beings from themselves. And that's what sovereign grace does.
1: Right, and I think that's where I have a hang-up, Mr. Koukl, as so we're talking about the fact that God's moral will is that everybody be saved, and that good would come upon all these people, correct?
0: Yes, that's the way I'd characterize it.
1: Okay. In that case, though, on Reformed theology, God is the one responsible for our salvation. Right, He is the determiner of who is saved. Thus, if God, God, God on the one hand has the moral will to that all men would be saved, and He has the means to accomplish such a thing, which He does on Reformed theology, then I, I have a hard time seeing why He couldn't accomplish that. That seems to con- contradict two wills He has.
0: Oh well, it well, it's not a contradiction because there are different types of wills. Okay, but it does raise the question of why doesn't He do? uh why doesn't he fulfill his will in the case of salvation and um y- you know it's interesting in uh, at at what almost 16 are you 16 yet
1: yeah 16
0: oh you're 15 now you're not quite 16
1: no uh, yeah 16 i i turned 16 in the end of may
0: oh Oh, so you already turned sixteen? Okay. The point sure. I'm making is still a young man, so you have, um, you know, you, you're old enough to experience uh, temptations of various sorts. Um, I can tell you from my own experience, and every person Christian can do this, that that they know that there are things that they have been tempted to do, and what God God has somehow prevailed upon them as an act of mercy to work so that they did not accomplish the particular sin that they were being tempted to do, and even to some degree planning. I'm thinking of something very particular in my own life right now. And what happened is the circumstances happened so that my heart was completely changed regarding my commitment to sin, and I didn't sin. I didn't do that. I went in a different direction, but it was because of a closeness I felt to God. So what happened there is that God rescued me from a sin that he didn't need to rescue me from, but he doesn't rescue everybody from sin, and he doesn't rescue me from every sin. God is certainly capable of stepping in and something that is his moral will, and that seeing that that moral will in some instance is accomplished by changing the heart of the the person involved, redirecting their, their will and purposes, wooing them in a certain way. And I know that all of us who have walked with the Lord for a while have had this experience, that God stopped us, not just slamming a door in our face—sometimes that's the case—but changing our heart to do the right thing. There's an instance where God works to fulfill his moral will in the lives of some people, but does not work the same way to fulfill his moral lo- the same moral will in the lives of others. He has the prerogative to exercise the grace he wants to, to rescue us from ourselves when he desires. Even though he desires all people to be sexually pure, he doesn't rescue all people from sexual impurity. But he does rescue some, for example, and uh, and so this this falls in the exact same category that we're talking about here.
1: Okay. That, that does make sense, Mr. Colton, and this actually will help us move on a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, for me, like, even talking about, like, for example, like, uh, in Thessalonians, like, God wills that we would abstain from sexual immorality, and yet some people don't. That's right. And, then and But sometimes
0: decided, he protects a person from that, sovereignly. Right, right by an act of grace, right. right.
1: And so for me, I, I struggle with that, because it's like if God has the ability to... Well, I'll bring it back to salvation because that's what we're talking about. If God has the ability to save people and he doesn't, like for, well, that, that, that kind of brings me to my next point is that we say God is love and that he, he loves the whole world. Um, but is it loving to not save, um, these people, these unbelievers, even though they deserve to, to have, we all deserve to have eternal punishment. Well,
0: so this is where—we this we talked about this a little bit in, in uh, Colorado, and this is where different Christians are going to have different responses. Bill Craig right. thinks that God is obliged to save as many as it's possible to save within the constraints of, of his theological convictions um, be, because of love. Love requires it. And my response is that grace is supererogatory. In other words, it's above and saving grace. It's above and beyond the call of duty, okay? God is not obliged to save. This is why we call it grace. If he is obliged to save by his love, then he is constrained to save all, if he possibly can. And I, I I just don't accept that notion. Now, I think Shedd goes into some detail about that, but I can't remember what he said. Um, but suffice it to say, this is a—I do not—again, people are going to disagree here. But um, I have another thought, quickly, and then we're going to have to move on but uh, to some other callers. But uh, I, 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 I don't think that love by itself requires that God save everybody, or as many as possible. It, uh, and and then the decisive factor is going to be someone's decision for him that they make all on their own, as it were. Um, I don't think God is required to do that. But this is what brings me to another issue, and that is... <clears throat> Um, and I, it, our conversation has been different than most. Most of the conversations I have with people, they they bring up things like, well, some of the passages that you brought up, well, if, if he desires all men to be saved, then what? Well, I, I, there are answers to that 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 don't require this verse in vey against Reformed theology. But they bring up, well, what's the point of evangelism? What's the point of this? What's the point of that? How could such and so? What about love? And I said, here's my thought. They're asking the wrong questions what they should be asking is, what does the Scripture state about the issue of salvation? And my conviction is, what it states is that no man can come for the Father to Jesus unless the Father draws him, and all that the Father gives him, he loses nothing and raises it up in the last day. So for me, when, and that's just one of the verses, you know, as many as were appointed to eternal life were saved, that's early in the book of Acts, later in the book of Acts. And God opened Lydia's heart to believe the gospel. So you've got lots and lots of straight ahead verses like this. Uh, and the, just the, the words, the elect and the chosen. Okay, the elect are ones that are elected. They don't elect themselves. That's not election. The chosen are ones that are chosen. They don't choose themselves. So when it comes to this legitimate question that you're raising, about well, doesn't God's love require that he treat everybody, he, he you know, save everybody? <clears throat> my response is apparently not, because these mm-hmm. other statements make it very clear what God has decided to do. And what I have to do is I have to make my assessment in light of what God says specifically about salvation. And okay. and, and then this is why Shad says this question that you're raising. It's inscrutable. There, there are no answers to that. We can't. Why did God save some rather than others? We don't know. It's the kind intention of His will, according to First uh, Paul in First in Ephesians chapter one. So this is where these straightforward say, statements do a lot of work for me. Okay, and then with the other ones, I got to go. Well, is there a way I can I can explain that in light of my theology? Yeah, Second Peter. 1 Timothy chapter 2, I can't explain that. It doesn't invade directly against my theology because there's an alternate explanation. Well, what about love? Well, apparently love doesn't require that he save everybody, choose everybody, cuz he doesn't choose everybody and he is a loving god. And that's where okay. I'm left, all right? And that may not be satisfying for everybody, but I, I the only alternative is for me then to to kind of opt for God must be loving as much as he possibly can, but he can't because people choose. But the text doesn't say it's all man's choice. It it says these other things, and so what I end up having to do is, in a certain sense, disregard what I think is the common sense force of some of those other passages that I don't see can be re- interpreted in other ways, and 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 to to uh, to satisfy my concern about the love of God, if God's love. In a salvific sense, is supererogatory. Then, in other words, above and beyond the call of duty. Then, then that question is answered. Look at John uh, last last one. John chapter. Uh, the upper room discourse, okay, um, and I always have a hard time finding this because the upper room discourse goes from thirteen to seventeen, right, uh, in John. But there is a verse. Let me see here. Uh if I can find it. Cause I got notes all over, but oh, that's <laughs> seventeen and sixteen. Um because what he says is if you follow me and believe in me, my father will love you. Okay. Um in other words, the father loves believers in a way that he does not love non believers. And this is really clear in the passage, which I'm not able to find right now. But it's probably in fourteen, fifteen, or 16. Okay? And uh, if he talks about loving one another a lot, but he says that he makes this comment, by golly, maybe Amy will be able to find it and put it in the notes. But you find that verse, and it makes it really clear that God does not love everyone the same. He has a salvific special love for believers. Right. And that uh, that's un- inescapable. Oh, here it is. Uh, f- I got 1423. No, this is John 1423. Jesus answered and said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Chapter 14, verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. So the love of the Father that's being expressed there is a response to our loving Christ and and, and, and keeping his word, being his. So minimally, God doesn't love everybody exactly the same. And so that's got to be factored into the, to the enterprise. Got to go here, Cade. I know there's still a lot to think about.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, I will say, Mister because I know you have to move on, but that is very helpful for me because if Scripture is our final authority, then maybe it's my conception of God's love or God's character or God's actions that's flawed, and not the interpretation of Scripture.
0: Yeah. I, and and I, I think this is a very very hard issue, you know, for people to countenance, and I I, I get it. Um, I, I, I I'm I'm sympathetic to that. So. Um, Anyway, so we'll keep working on this, okay?
1: Sounds awesome. Okay, Thank buddy. You, Mr. Coco. Yeah, it's
0: a pleasure talking to you again, Kate. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. All right, that is something. Oh, um, I, I'm not going to go to break just because we've got a bunch of people on board, but I'm still lingering over John 10 here because there's something about the wording that to me was really... Um, Important to me, but I, I, I'm not. I need my magnifying glass. My reading glasses are not enough. So let's just go to St. Louis, and uh, let's see. That's line three. Okay, there you go, Ben. You're on board. Welcome to the Hi, show. Greg. Hi there.
3: Thanks. Um, I'm I'm, uh, I'm already a strategic partner, or I, or I would join um, the the 100. But, oh, great. Um, so my my question is, and this is something my wife and I have been talking about a lot lately, is that You have a lot of these corporations and businesses who have come out very, very specifically with, um, you know, LGBTQ agendas and have come out very specifically that, um, you know, Target and Disney and some of the other companies.
0: Miller Lite. Come out with it. (laughs) Yes. And
3: so, so um, my wife and I were talking about this and. I said, well, I'm not going to patronize. I'm not going to pay Disney any money anymore. I'm not going to, we're not going to Disney. We're not going to do anything with them because they clearly have something that's against the Bible. Right. She, she says, well, you're going to have to just do that with every place. Um, and my my concern is this, and I see pastors coming out and saying, I mean, I've had pastors. Say that Star Wars is biblical and things like that—it's just kind of craziness. But, but um, my, my concern is: okay, why would I give money? And this this applies to even podcasters who I have a lot of respect for have talked about their great trip to Disney and so on. Um, you know, why would I give money and support somebody who's clearly against biblical, you know, the Bible mm-hmm. um, as a corporation? and and continue to support them so they can continue to do whatever they're doing sure sure Um, and you know my wife it's very odd because usually it would be exactly the opposite my wife would be we're not going to disney but she's like well it doesn't really matter you know Mm -hmm. you're just not going to make a difference and so on and i'm like well it's possible it doesn't make a difference but we have to stand on a principle that says if they're saying they're going to actively promote this agenda i don't want to give them our money and support them But I I find a lot of Christians are like, yeah, it's no
0: big deal. Sure. Okay, let me speak to that. Um, And this is an important issue, and it's a practical thing you face on a regular basis, okay? Um, What I'm going to say might sound a little bit uh, unusual, or maybe you'll disagree, whatever, but when you give money to an organization, you are not supporting the ideology that the owners of the corporation support. You are purchasing a product, and your money is going to that product now it may turn out uh if it, if if we were to draw a moral connection a necessary moral connection between the money we spent with the company and the way they use their money we would be guilty of of doing something immoral no matter where we spent our money okay so on the one hand i do not believe that there is a direct moral connection between Um, patronizing Disney and supporting the LGBT cause that Disney supports. Um, I'm going to give another illustration in a minute, but here's the other side of that. I think it's completely legitimate to not patronize establishments whose ideologies, publicly stated, are ones you disagree with. it's entirely legitimate for you to vote with your dollars as a matter of personal conscience. You know what? Maybe it's not immoral to go to Disneyland, but I don't like those people. I don't like what they stand for. I'm not going. Fine. I think it's great. And as far as not having an impact, it does have an impact had an impact on Miller Lite, had an impact on Target, and it's having an impact on, uh, well, uh, it's having a financial impact on Disney. Their bottom line is really looking bad lately. Right. Okay. So it is a way of, in a certain sense, well, as they say, voting with your dollar or voting with your feet kind of thing. All right. Now, there is another organization that is a lot like these organizations, Uh, very, very woke very much supporting all of these things, and that organization is called Delta Airlines. Right. And I fly Delta all the time, and the reason is I need to get places, and Delta is right. a good way to get there, and they have a good frequent flyer program, and I get bumped up to first class half, half the time I fly with them. Okay. Now, is right. that a compromise? No, because my money going to Delta is not, is not supporting their ideology. It's buying a product. They have their own ideology, and all things being equal, maybe I wouldn't participate. I don't want to go to Disneyland. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go there ever, as far as I'm concerned. I'm going to take my kids. We ought to have been there a bunch of times. It's just old mm-hmm. whatever, and I'm not going back. They're too expensive anyway. So uh, right. I'm not going to do that. Um, but, I, 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 but I have to fly. And so right. I, it's not a compromise, because in my mind, there's no moral connection. But I will speak— okay ill of delta in that regard which i have i have written things about delta airlines articles right. where you could just see all of their kind of gross promotion of homosexuality it's just all over the place right. so yeah. um, so th- that those are the two things going on i don't think that it is immoral for a christian to patronize a business that has immoral principles uh like what we're describing. <clears throat> now, okay. it's immoral to patronize an immoral business, like prostitution, you know, illegal right. gambling, or, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not what we're talking about. Okay. You, you are spending your money to buy a product, and the product is legal, and you're spending the money for it is legitimate, and what they do with their money is their business. But if you decide, I know what they do with their money, and I don't want to buy from them, and I am going to buy from somebody else, knock yourself out. That's great. Okay. It's, it's just okay. not a moral requirement.
3: Okay, so there's no, there's no, um, you know, if one person, you know, I know it says in the Bible that, you know, if, if something that you're doing causes somebody to stumble, there's nothing like that would apply here, right? Like you stumbling, know,
0: okay. stumbling, in that sense, the stumbling is to do something immoral. You're causing them to do something right. immoral. In that particular okay. case, is you're causing them to violate their conscience. Okay? So, uh, right. so that, you know, something like that may apply in some circumstances here, but uh, as a strict moral assessment, there is nothing—just like Paul says, there's nothing immoral about eating meat sacrificed to idols, because an idol isn't anything you know, but if what you Mm -hmm. do is you encourage somebody to do something that violates their conscience, well, then that's another problem. But I don't know if, look at it, I would tell somebody, so my family's going to Disneyland. Oh, you don't believe in it? Then don't go. Don't violate your conscience. All right.
3: Okay.
0: No problem there. Okay. All right, buddy.
3: Okay.
0: Yeah, sounds good. Thank you. Thanks for the call.
3: No problem. Okay, okay,
0: take care. All right, we're moving right along here. we got 20 minutes left, not quite 20 minutes, and we've got uh, Joshua in Louisiana. Hi, Josh.
4: Hey, Greg, or Mr. Greg, thanks for having me.
0: Yes, you're welcome.
4: <laughs> yeah. hey, we've talked a you. couple times uh, in the past about okay. time and God and uh, God's relationship to time, and you've went over what you learned in William Lane Craig's class, I think back in the nineties. Uh-huh. Uh, so recently I've been thinking about times more, uh, particularly infinity, mm-hmm. uh, potential infinities and actual infinities. And right. I, the, the question did occur to me, how is it possible, uh, it, presuming we allow for potential infinites, but do not allow for actual infinites? Mm-hmm. If there is a never ending sequence of events throughout the perpetuation of time. Um, how could God actually know every single event, if he no, does know everything?
0: Well, I guess the thing that I would say about that, and it, this would be an interesting—I bet you William Lane Craig has weighed in on this, because this is part of his— He has, but I didn't get it. <laughs> you, uh, yeah. uh, what I would say is, the future is not infinite, it's just never-ending. And uh, that may sound like a trick of words, but um, the the no matter, you, you will never live for an infinity. You will live forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. You will never die, but you will never live for an infinity. You will always have an age, and it will always be increasing. So uh, infinity there is, is is not an actuality. And I don't know exactly how Craig is going to deal with that. The the, there are two positions on on actual infinites. One is there can be no actual infinite. That's Bill's view, and he said it creates absurdities. All right, and he talks about Hilbert's hotel and different things. So actual infinites are not possible. Now, that's not my view. I'm not disagreeing with him, but I am not comfortable affirming it. Okay, and you raise a question about how God could have. knowledge of the future which is never-ending, which is a potential infinite, but it wouldn't be, at least arguably, potential infinite to God. It would be an actual infinite to God, because he knows all of these events that never end, and so there, it in his knowledge it becomes an actual infinite. Then isn't God himself in possession of an actual infinite uh, knowledge of an actual infinite series of events? Maybe, and this is why I'm not comfortable Arguing there are no actual infinites. Um, the reason what Bill is doing, Bill Craig is doing, is he's he is making a case for the origin of the universe, and uh, one of the reasons that we believe philosophically the universe must have had a beginning, is because of the impossibility of actual infinites so if the universe never had any, had a beginning but it's a series of events it would be an example of an actual infinite series of events and so he's arguing against that i don't think you have to go that far there's a there's a more modest or conservative way of making the same point and and that is you cannot accomplish an actual infinite, by successive addition. Now, that's a little different. One says you can never have an actual infinite. I don't know, maybe you could, and your question suggests that it might be possible God has the knowledge of an actual infinite number of events in eternity future. Uh, but but uh, when it comes to the age of the universe, um, if the universe is never had a beginning. That means the series of events, one after another, adding one after another, would come to an infinite amount at today's at today's events, okay? But that would be like counting to infinity, Infinity, which you can't do. One, two, three, four, five, 100, 200, 300, whatever. You keep counting it, you're always going to have a number. Just like we will never live to an infinity. Even though we live forever and ever, we will always have an age. And the point here is, if you cannot accomplish an actual infinite counting forward, you cannot accomplish an actual infinite counting backwards in time either. It can't happen. There must have been a beginning. So, I think that the qualified way I talk about actual infinites that is, that there's no actual infinites that are accomplished through successive addition, still gets us the beginning of the universe with a philosophical argument. You don't have to go to Hilbert's Hotel, you know, and all of that thing that Bill Craig does in order to make the case for the beginning of the universe using a philosophic argument. So, um, I mean, that's the way I would approach this okay what is what does bill say about the question that you answer that you asked It sounded like you have already looked at his site
4: yeah, I've done some digging. He suggested that um we describe the events in the future propositionally or as propositions, but he says that that's just more of like of a useful way of speaking, and that God's knowledge is not actually propositional um Uh, He he said you could imagine God's knowledge like a field of view, and that you could describe the field of view through pixels, which would be the propositions, but you have the view, which is the whole, and God just has the whole. And the reason that was just hard for me to really uh, understand is because I was assuming that, well, if you have a whole and you can divide it up into pixels, there's only so many pixels, and so you still don't have infinity, even if you presume that... The pixels have like a third dimension of depth,
0: right? Uh, so I, I can see and why it's
4: still not infinite.
0: I can see why you'd be unsatisfied about this response, and I am too, because the issue isn't how God knows. That is, He doesn't know these events successively; He knows all at once. That's not the problem. The problem is, what is it He knows all at once, and He and He would know an infinite number of facts about the future which means there are an actual infinite number of facts about the future. And his omniscience would accomplish that. So I, I'm not satisfied with that response either. Um, I, it doesn't go to the issue. Um, so I, I haven't talked to him about it. I, I You know, I get a chance occasionally to, to see him and chat about some of these things. And uh, probably the next time I see him will be in November. But um, I think that's not an adequate answer. This is why I don't want to argue the impossibility of actual infinites, but rather argue the other way that I suggested. So I think you're on to something, Josh. All right.
3: Okay. Got, All
0: right. Well, I appreciate to, it. Yeah, I got to run to our next caller. So thanks. Thanks, thanks so much for your call.
2: Okay. Bye.
0: Bye. And that leaves Larry and Fremont. We made it.
2: Greg. Um the what we were talking about with the first caller, um, uh Alien Life, Life on Other Planets. Yes. Some of this has already been answered in that uh recent congressional hearing uh where there was a uh, Air Force intelligence agent that testified there are artifacts from craft spaceships, uh there are uh Samples of alien life Mm -hmm. in possession of the government, and of course I don't know if that fellow was lying, but there's good, you know, there's good reason to think he was telling the truth. Yeah, okay, but that's a minor minor point because I can accept
0: that too. Because even if those things are those kind of testimonies are veridical, and we have aliens, from other it doesn't upset any detail of theology of Christianity at all. No, I agree, and I
2: also agree. With your suggestion that these um uh supposed aliens that people encounter may very well be demonic in origin Mm -hmm. um and and your skepticism is well founded by the way but what a lot of what you're saying is founded on false assumptions this this idea that um earth is the only place with living things on it it's just it's just kind of silly i mean it's a big universe, and there's uh, there's so many stars like the sun, or uh, uh, that could easily have uh, um, Earth-like planets.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, well, you said false assumptions. What I'm do what I'm basing my conclusion on, is not is not false assumptions. It might not be a correct conclusion, but the uh, they're not assumptions. They're what we know about what's necessary in terms of biological or environmental parameters that would make life possible. And I know, I remember many years ago, uh, before I was a Christian, I was like 20 years old in college or something, and there was this movie called If, I-F, and um, there was a a reflection there a person was making that the chances are, and he gave these numbers, and um, that, that there are so many tens of thousands of planets that speak English, Because you just did, you do the math. Okay. This is where Drake's equation comes in, and this was uh, parameters that were required for life. Uh, I think this was 20 or 30 or maybe 40 years ago, and Carl Sagan was involved with this process, and that they used his equation to determine how many other. Planets, there must be that have life, kind of like ours. The problem with Drake's equation is it only took into consideration a handful of parameters necessary for intelligent life, and we have learned that there are dozens and dozens and dozens of more parameters necessary for intelligent life. Now, also, when you the do the math, the
2: parameters he assigned are, are kind of arbitrary.
0: Wait, what? He Drake had
2: really no reason. You're talking his, about Drake for his guess.
0: Well, let's just say uh, we we know, for example, that life sur- it can survive only with a sun that's like ours. Okay, there you go. That's one example. Okay,
2: actually, actually, life could survive on uh, other kinds of suns, depending on how far away, how far away it was from the sun. Um, well, it has to do with luminosity other, other and radiation like
0: and, and stability and all kinds of things like that. I'm not an astronomer. I can't tell you this, but this is what secular astronomers have determined. So that's one requirement, okay? Now what that means is all the other suns, all the other stars in the universe that are not like our sun, are eliminated as possibilities. But that's just one. But
2: that would be wrong. That's arbit- That's ar- totally oh. arbitrary. Okay, well... Because it, if it's a bigger sun, then the planet could be farther away from the sun. Okay. If it's a if it's a colder sun, the planet could be closer to the sun. Okay. And all and every you know, just there's many possibilities, Larry. But I wanted to answer some of the points you brought up. Okay, wait a minute, about, just a
0: second. Wait, you just said something, and I've got to qualify it. It's not arbitrary. It's not just made up. There is a reason why this is an important detail in the analysis. Now, there may be more expansiveness with regards to that detail, but it is only one of many, many, many details that astronomers who are not Christians and have no spiritual axe to grind have established as a necessary parameter for life. That's what I'm saying. Okay, go ahead.
2: I agree that the the Goldilocks um, uh, window is important but it can be achieved many different ways. But what were you saying about space travel? Um, and of course, if, there's, if it's faster than live travel, these things wouldn't even come, to, come into play. But you were saying uh, you need so much fuel. Well, in interstellar space, um, you basically keep going the speed you're going there's nothing to slow you down. Well, there is. So there, are, there
0: are molecules in space. It's not a perfect vacuum. And so there's <laughs> friction. Don't be left. Laugh- uh, okay, yeah, you- that
2: small amount of friction is look, not going to slow listen, you down much.
0: Okay, you can and laugh. And if
2: it does, you might have rockets of... The small rockets will be enough
0: right. to, w- to
2: keep you going.
0: Larry, Larry, yeah. I, you can laugh if you want. The rockets have to push against something to keep going, okay? That means there's got to be something to push against. It's not a mm. vacuum. But when you multiply even the small amount of friction by the great distances that are in question, then you have an increasing level of difficulty, and it becomes problematic, okay? I
2: think jets work even in space. But
0: they do because space isn't a perfect vacuum.
2: The, <laughs> those things don't really come into play. The the, ima- the amount of random molecules in space does, does, just doesn't even factor in. But you, you and you were talking about there's so much radiation in space. If you're not near a star, there's very little radiation. Um, and it, you know, hard radiation that could hurt you. Now, when you come close to a star, yeah, but it's not going to—it's not necessarily going to uh, going to kill you. You know, mm-hmm. we we live in a constant radiation bar, uh, um, bombardment. Okay, can you see
0: the Milky Way? Yeah. Okay, why can you see it? Because light is reaching you. Guess what? Light is—it's radiation.
2: Yeah, hard. I'm talking about hard radiation that can it, that can hurt you.
0: Right. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. Um, I'm working with information that's coming from astronomers. All right. And like I said, it's not my field. Radiation is a problem. But you're arranging so these...
2: it in a certain way. that's really arbitrary. And yeah. and you were you were laughing, but you really should read more science. No, oh, I'm
0: laughing because it's a little bit frustration. I'm not laughing at you. Okay. Thank you so much for your your point of view. And I wasn't laughing derisively. Please. Um, Understand that it's like okay, all right, different a source of information. All right, uh, Greg Kochel here of Santa Reason. Give them heaven, friends. Bye bye now.